Amen. You can go ahead and take a seat. If someone doesn't mind, would you close those doors? That glare is really going to bother me. Appreciate it. Somebody has their windshield right where it's going to go, right in my eye. I wonder if they did that on purpose. Well, good morning. My name's Paul. So glad that you're here. Have you ever been in a classroom setting and someone asked a question and everyone just sort of groaned? Because it was like one of those questions, like, oh, really? Why do you have to ask that? Um, Well, as you can imagine, that happens quite often in middle school classrooms. Uh, My mom taught middle school for 20-something years, and I've worked with middle schoolers for a long time myself. And so, for whatever reason, they're very inquisitive. They're not scared to ask their questions, but sometimes they're just those kind of questions where you go, oh, really? Um, One particular middle school teacher was a world history teacher. And he did a great job of telling the events and acting them out and getting the kids really interested. I personally wasn't a huge history fan, but, but this teacher really made things uh, come alive for his students. And so all the kids loved him. They were always looking forward to his presentations. Well, one day, he did a presentation about the betrayal and killing of Julius Caesar. Pretty, pretty big deal in, in world history, a pretty pivotal moment that happened in 44 B.C., and so he went through, he described all the detail, all the, the po- political stuff leading up to it, what happened. You know, you have the famous moment where he says, et tu, Brute, right? And you, Brutus, really? You're going to do this too, to me? And uh, so he, he tells this incredible story. He's pretty excited about how well he's done, you know, getting the students' attention. And he asks for questions, and one of the students raises their hand, eagerly ready to ask what he thought was going to be an exciting question based on his presentation. And the student simply says, is he dead? (laughs) What kind of question is that? It happened in 44 BC. He was stabbed 23 times. Uh, So it's just one of those kind of groaning moments where you're thinking, that is your question? Well, I found some other kind of bad questions uh, posted on the internet. And I, I wanted to show you these on the screen because You wouldn't believe them if you didn't see them, I think, some of these. The first one is, how big is the specific ocean? (laughs) Now, that one could kind of get you to talk in circles. It's kind of like who's on first. You know, you could say, which specific ocean? Well, you know, the specific ocean. Yeah, it's one of those kind of questions. The next one, will staring at a picture of the sun hurt your eyes? (laughs) Right? Depends on how long you stare at it, I guess. But uh, yeah, that, that's a groaning question. What about, does it take twins 18 months to be born? Well, of course it does, right? Uh, next one, how long does it take to drive from Miami to Florida? I've been wondering that myself. Uh, with the recent popularity of tattoos, I think this next one is especially important. Will I pass on my tattoos to my baby genetically? Most likely, yes, if you're asking that question. Um, the next one, if I shave my dog like a lion, with the, will the other dogs respect him more? <laughs> Try and see, I guess, right? And then finally, the last one, I like this because of my mask and my socks that I'm wearing today, but if Batman's parents are dead, then how was he born? Yeah, you have to think about that one for a second, right? There are no right answers to wrong questions. And as we look at our series of God's view of current events, we're going to look at a familiar moment in the New Testament. But it teaches us something very important as we navigate life today, the importance of asking the right question. 
Because we make the mistake of assuming the things that we're experiencing are unique, first time in human history kind of occurrences. Every generation always thinks they have it the worst, right? The world is the worst it's ever been, and they may be right. But a lot of this stuff has been experienced and seen before in other contexts and in other ways. And Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 10 that is familiar, but it's full of the types of current events we're hearing about every day. It has neglect. It has hatred. It has division. It has racism. It has crime. It has violence. But it also has mercy and love. And Jesus has an interaction here in this passage with someone that asked the wrong question. Could be everyone in the room went, oh, I'm not sure. They might have all wondered the same thing. And I think we have a tendency to do the same thing. As with all that we see going on in the lives of people around us, we have to be sure we're asking the right question, the question that Jesus would want us to ask. So let's pray together before we dive in. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you that you helped to point out the ways that we are just close but not quite in the ways that you've called us to live for you, in the ways that you've called us to interact with one another. And so, God, I just pray that even though we're looking at a familiar story in Scripture, that we would allow it to speak to us in a fresh way, that, that whatever you want to say to us through this today, we would not put any walls or barriers in the way. We'd be ready to say yes to you before you even ask. And it's in your son's name I pray. Amen. So we're, like I said, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. And the story I'm talking about, if you haven't gotten there yet, is the Good Samaritan. Um, it's one of those stories in scripture that has become well known even outside the church. Uh, you have organizations like Samaritan's Purse who use it in their name. We have hospitals around the country that are called Good Samaritan Hospital because they know what that uh, evokes, the meaning that that evokes to people. It's even a recognized colloquial phrase for a good deed. You might see a, well, nobody really gets newspapers anymore, but that may be a headline on a, on a website that says uh, Good Samaritan Deed, and you know that someone did something heroic in helping someone else. So this is a phrase that we know. It's familiar, but I think we miss a lot of the power of this interaction because we think we know everything about it. So I want you to turn that off today. Assume that there's something about this you don't know, and let's dive into that together. Because if you reduce this story to just the moral of being a good neighbor, you're really missing the depth and power of what Jesus is teaching here. God has opened my eyes to some new aspects of this as I uh, studied in preparation for today. And I just pray you'll be able to say the same thing. So let's start with what leads up to Jesus telling this story in verses 25 through 28 of Luke chapter 10. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So here we have a lawyer that stands up to ask this question, to test Jesus. And the word for lawyer here is a little bit different than what we would think of. It's not a courtroom lawyer. He is an expert in the law, specifically the Old Testament law. And so he stands up as an expert 
to test and see if, if Jesus is on track or not. We don't really know the exact reason, but we know he wanted to measure Jesus up a little bit. And the question he asked is a pretty big one. It's an important one, right? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And in Jesus' response, we see his wisdom and his control of these situations, right? He knows the heart of the question. the expert to answer it for himself. And what does he say? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. That's a good answer, right? We've heard that somewhere before. Uh, Jesus himself answers with those exact words in Matthew 22 when he's asked in another setting, what is the greatest commandment? And these phrases are called the Shema in the Jewish faith. Uh, they were recited twice a day by devout Jews, such as this expert in the Old Testament law. So when he's asked to answer his own question, the expert quickly recites something from his religious knowledge, from his extensive study. And as soon as he does that, and Jesus responds to his answer, he knows that instead of cornering Jesus with his test, he's actually backed himself into a corner, which I think is pretty funny. Because you look closely at Jesus' words in verse 28, he says, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Emphasis on the word this. So there's this whole long list, this Shema, of love the Lord your God with everything you are and your neighbor as yourself. And when Jesus responds, he connects the two parts together by using the word this. It makes loving God with everything you are and loving your neighbor part of a singular answer. They go together. Loving God and loving others cannot be separated. He says, do this and you will live. Love God with everything you are and your neighbor is yourself. A singular answer. And the lawyer knows he's in trouble because now it's evident to everybody that's watching his question that he already knew the answer. He had some other agenda in mind. His motive for asking the question was something other than actually getting the answer. So how does he respond when he gets exposed? Well, it goes right into it in verse 29. It says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? He responds by trying to save face, trying to justify himself. And in so doing, this is the moment where he asks the completely wrong question. This is that groaning moment. Who is my neighbor? Now think about that question for a second. It doesn't sound like too terrible of a question, but what is he really asking? In asking who is my neighbor, he's asking who do I have to love to be okay with this requirement? Who do I have to love to be okay? He's asking for some boundaries to the commandment. He's asking for some acceptable limits to the commandment. He wants to know the bare minimum that he can get away with and be okay. He was relating to God based on morality, just wanting to be sure he was doing enough to be okay. And he wanted to reduce God's command to something he could live with by knowing who 
and how much he had to love. And it's completely the wrong question, as we will see. And how does Jesus respond? Well, he doesn't answer it at all. This is where he rolls right into the story of the Good Samaritan. So let's remind ourselves how it goes. Verses 30 to 37. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go. And do likewise. So this journey between Jerusalem and Jericho was well known for its danger. Uh, there's lots of twists and turns and rocky outcroppings that would allow thieves and bandits to hide and ambush potential victims. It was so well known in the day that it was named the Way of Blood. So this was something people knew about. This story was very relatable and understandable to the audience that Jesus was telling it to. They understood this was a very real thing that could have happened. And with this story, Jesus shows us several truths about being a neighbor. And at face value, like we've said, the message of the Good Samaritan is that we are to love our neighbor. Right? Nobody really has a problem with that sentiment. We, we all kind of shake our heads. Yeah, you're supposed to love your neighbor. Just like... The lawyer who had the right answer. Most people in our world, both Christians and even non-Christians, agree that helping your neighbor, seeing people through a crisis, caring for the poor, giving to those less fortunate um, to get them maybe just over the hump is right. But where it gets sticky is in the actual practice, in the specific questions, in the specific situations. And we all ask the wrong question, who is my neighbor? Meaning, who do I actually have to love? Who do I actually have to help and be okay with this command? We all want to know the limits, the boundaries, or maybe we just make them up ourselves. We set our own limits. We limit who, when, and how much when it comes to loving our neighbor. And Jesus doesn't tell the story of the Good Samaritan to teach the lawyer the mandate to love his neighbor. The lawyer already knew it. He could recite it. He said it two times a day. He knew that was important. Jesus told the story to expose the limits the lawyer placed on the commandment and to reveal the true magnitude and the proper motivation for this call to love, this thing that he recited twice a day. He wanted him to see it in a new way and to start asking the right questions. So let's talk about that idea of limits. We limit in lots of ways, like I said, who we will help, when we will help, how much we will help. This man's traveling this especially dangerous road from Jericho to Jerusalem. He is robbed, beaten, left for dead. And Jesus doesn't really mention anything about this guy. He just says a man. Some older other versions say a certain man. That's about as specific as it gets. Um, Not very descriptive. 
And I want you to kind of bookmark that in your mind and we'll come back to it later because I think there may be a reason for that. But he does specifically describe some of the other characters, right? And they fell into two groups. We have the religious Jews and we have the Samaritan. And you could not have picked a more historically hate-filled division for a cast of characters than religious Jews and Samaritans. They hated each other. They detested each other. It's, the, it's one of the more uh, vile people group relationships there have, has been in the history of our world. And we have these religious Jews that come by and see this guy that has been beaten, robbed, and left for dead. And a lot of different theories have been put forward over the years to try to understand why the religious Jews might have passed by the victim. Maybe they were in a hurry. Maybe they didn't want to defile themselves because touching a, a body or blood or maybe he's dead, we can't touch him, we'd be defiled. That one's a problem because they had already done their religious service. They were going from Jerusalem to Jericho, not the other way, but that's for another sermon. Uh, maybe they were simply afraid to stop and help because the robbers might still be close by, right? I mean, this could have just happened. This is a dangerous road. I need to get on down to safety while I can. Regardless of the reason, the bottom line is that the victim did not meet the requirements in their view of loving their neighbor. Their actions say that to us. He must, he's not my neighbor. i got to get on down the road to do what I need to do. And Jesus chose those characters specifically, and he gave them lame excuses. <laughs> Because as religious leaders, they were involved in leading the people in worship and sacrifice. They were involved in helping people to deal with their sin and to connect with God and, and know who he was. They were probably involved in teaching them the Shema that they were supposed to recite twice a day that said they were supposed to love their neighbor as themselves. And this is what happens when you ask the wrong question. There are no right answers to wrong questions. There's always a way to rationalization for the limits we put on being a neighbor. And it really comes down to a problem of motivation, a problem of the heart. If your only question is what the limits are on being a neighbor, your motivation is religious or moral duty or just doing the right thing. And that's no different than what the world would say. Right? We should help our neighbor because it's the right thing to do. But this motivation always finds its end. It always finds its limit. It always comes to the end of the rope. It always comes to a barrier that we can create. This idea of fulfilling a religious duty is where a lot of the teaching on this passage stops. We're supposed to love our neighbor because Jesus told this story and the guy, the Samaritan helped the guy. So we should help others too. That's where a lot of it stops. But what does that lead to? That leads to guilt, right? And you might change your behavior for a, a week or two or a month or two. You might try to think about it differently the next time you see someone in need. But Jesus never makes guilt the motivation for loving others because that's not real love. This story is not about guilt. Real love flows from the heart. And it has to come from a deeper motivation than religious or moral duty. And Jesus uses the Samaritan on purpose to demonstrate this love. Listen to the beginning of the story again 
in verses 30 to 33. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. All three characters saw the victim. No one can say they didn't see him. They saw him. The priest and the Levite saw him and quickly looked away and kept moving on the other side. But something different happened when the Samaritan saw him. He had compassion for him. He had something that stirred within him. He had a love that flowed from within. The two parts of this word compassion actually mean with suffering or suffering alongside. True compassion sees the need and is moved to come alongside and do something to meet or share the need. True compassion is motivated from within, not an outside moral code. It's something that's stirred within you. Do you know who else is described as having compassion? Jesus. Matthew 9.36 says, When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus saw people and he was moved, motivated to share and to meet the need, ultimately by going to the cross to make it possible for us to know and be right with God. That's compassion. You see, compassion is based on need, not worth. The Samaritan didn't ask the man what nationality he was before helping him. He didn't ask him if he had done something to provoke the attack. Did you deserve this? He didn't ask his theological view on Samaritans, which would have been a pretty important question of the day. He didn't ask his political party. He didn't ask him where he lived. He didn't ask him any other qualifying question. He saw the need, and he was moved from within. He had compassion. He saw the need, and he was moved to meet it. Because compassion's based on need, not worth. Compassion feels something. Again, the Greek word used here is a very vivid one. It refers to a deep-seated gut feeling. It comes from the deepest part of who you are. The Samaritan's heart was so moved by seeing the victim that he couldn't possibly pass by without helping. That's the way true compassion affects you. It stirs within you until you can't help but take some kind of action. Compassion is based on need, not worth. It feels something, and compassion does something tangible. Again, look at what he did in verses 34 and 35. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him and whatever more you spend. I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan went out of his way to make sure all the needs of this victim were taken care of. It was more than just lip service. He put himself and his own resources on the line. There's nothing more he could have done to show his compassion for this man. And remember, Jesus tells this story in response to the question, Who is my neighbor? And after telling what would have been a shocking story to his probably mostly Jewish audience. He turns that question back around on the lawyer 
in verses 36 and 37. And he says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. You notice the lawyer can't even bring himself to say Samaritan in his answer. He chokes on the words. He has a hard time even getting them out. The one who showed him mercy. He's so, he tried to save face and he only made it so much worse, didn't he? Jesus once again masterfully turns things around and shows us the right question. We don't need to ask who is my neighbor because that leads to limits. That leads to improper motivation that will always burn out and fall short and find a boundary or a reason that we don't have to fulfill the command. You know, earlier I said I wanted you to bookmark that we didn't really describe the victim very much. Jesus' description of the victim is very generic. He just says, a man. He's the only character in the story that doesn't get a more detailed uh, description. Why? Could it be that Jesus wanted the lawyer and all the other listeners to be able to put themselves in the place of the victim? Could it be that Jesus left the description of the victim generic so that we would be able to identify ourselves in that role as well? Just think about that for a second. It brings another level of depth to the emotion of the story when we think about ourselves in the place of the victim. It's as if Jesus is saying, you have received mercy, go and do likewise. You have received forgiveness, go and do likewise. The motivation Jesus gives us for loving our neighbor is not guilt. It's based on the understanding of what we've been given in Christ. Our motivation to love is not that God will get us if we disobey. It is because God first loved us. God first loved us. Romans 5.8 reminds us that God shows love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And Jesus is the model for what it means to be a loving neighbor. I'm so glad he didn't ask who he had to love when he was headed to the cross. He willingly died for all, even though we were undeserving of that love. So what is the right question? The wrong question is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus turns the question around, and he's asking you and me the right question. And the right question is, what kind of neighbor does God want you to be? What kind of neighbor does God want you to be? 1 John 3, 16 to 18 says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. So as we see the hurt and the pain and the confusion manifesting itself in our culture, in our current events, I think God's view of how we're to respond is the same today as it was when Jesus told this story to the lawyer when he asked the wrong question. In our cultural climate today, Jesus still says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. We shouldn't be asking mask or no mask. My rights are your beliefs. 
conspiracy theory or scientific data, Republican or Democrat, we have to stop navigating the divisive nature of our culture with questions designed to allow limits on who we love. We have to stop trying to cleverly save face and justify ourselves. It's time for God's people to rediscover compassion. To stop adding to the problem and become part of the solution. To stop seeing people's need for Jesus and passing by on the other side of the road. Our current events today present an unprecedented opportunity to share the love of Jesus. To show that what Jesus has done in us has changed us. And it has stirred something within us that changes how we view the world and how we interact with people and how we care for people. Jesus is telling us to stop asking, who is my neighbor? And start asking, what kind of neighbor does God want me to be? Because loving God and loving others cannot be separated. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for today. And what a challenge to my own life, this uh, message has been and is. God, I think if we're honest, we all ask that question, who is my neighbor? For the same reason the lawyer asked it. But I'm thankful, Jesus, that you didn't ask. That you gave yourself willingly for all of us, even though we were enemies of you through our sin. You made it possible for us to be forgiven. And so, God, because of the change you've made in us, I pray that we would rediscover compassion. We would understand we've been given mercy. We've been given forgiveness. Our most important needs have been taken care of. And you've left us with the mission of sharing the difference that you've made in us. God, we look around and we can, we can be so depressed, and it is a depressing situation our culture is in today. It's so divisive. It's so difficult. But God, you move in the divisive. You move in the difficult. This is an opportunity for the church to really rise up, for your people to rise up and show the difference that knowing you makes. So God, I pray that your authentic love would flow through us as we seek to know how to respond to the things we're encountering in our world today. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now today we're going to move into a time of communion, which is a perfect segue, because again, we're reminded of what Jesus has done for us so that then we can go out and live and be the people that he's called us to be. So over these next few moments, as you prepare your heart, as you get ready, we have these stations on the side. They're individually packaged. Uh, to deal with the nature of our day and, and the germs and those kind of things. You can take those and, and go to your seat or pray with your family or whoever you're with. But remind yourself of who Jesus is and what he's done. And then let that speak to you about who we are to be as we walk out into the situation we find ourselves in in today's world.